And good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, we used to say this, that this was a time of night when anything could happen. Unless you haven't looked around lately, this is now 24-7. We are living in the twilight zone. We're living in an alternate reality. We're living in a sci-fi major tentpole movie. Pick your metaphor. But we're definitely not living in normal day-to-day mainstream USA reality. We have a very extraordinary show for you tonight. What we're going to try to do is to summarize in three hours, 30 years of research into what most people would probably still consider an off-the-wall idea, namely that we are not the only sentient beings in the universe and we have evidence right next door. And rather than give the narrative away, we'll kind of get to that when we get to that in the next few minutes. I want to lead off tonight with a major story. Uh, If you go to theothersideofmidnight.com, that's our URL, that's our homepage, click on that. Click on tonight's banner for Saturday, April 25th, a date that will live in infamy in some places. Um, And then click on that banner, that will take you to tonight's guest page, and we have a whole bunch of guests, as you're going to see shortly. But at the very top, if you actually click on uh, Richard's items under the um, show page banner there, uh, you'll see uh, my fast links. Click on that. And it takes me to the first items. Number one, they have various reports from around the world, in particular from Taiwan and Japan. And this story was updated this afternoon. So it's the latest that we know. It looks like maybe, just possibly, Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, the most closed and secretive society on the planet, has not been seen in several days, and there are reports that he has, in fact, died. Now, I want to stress we don't know this for a fact. There's all kinds of rumors flying around. If you go to that zero-head story, which is item number one, That will give you the latest uh, information. I would uh, recommend that you do that. I don't want to spend a lot of time speculating, but um, there there was one input from uh, one of our panel members tonight when we were discussing this uh, yesterday, um, that the reason the president cut his uh, uh, daily press briefings on the COVID crisis short at the White House was because he had to go back to the Oval Office and deal with this potential situation. I mean, look, if the leader of North Korea, in fact, is now no longer with us, that creates a power vacuum in a dictatorship in a country not known for playing nicely by the rules, which means there could be behind the scenes a rather vicious cutthroat uh, fight going on as to who is going to be the next leader of North Korea. I've heard names like... um, uh, Kim Jong-un's uh, youngest sister, whose name uh, escapes me at the moment. You've seen her in various public venues. She was at the Olympics some years ago. Um, she seems to be, shall we say, a little more diplomatic than her uh, older brother. But, of course, there's a whole bunch of generals and there's other members of the family. And it could be a free-for-all. And, of course, the reason that we're looking at this at all tonight is because, remember, North Korea is a nuclear power. They have an unknown number of nuclear weapons. They've been developing launch vehicles, long and short-range ballistic missiles. And in a world of uncertainty, in terms of the COVID crisis, this piles more uncertainty on uncertainty. And so let's all cross our fingers that there is some kind of a quiet, smooth transition and uh, everything stays calm on the North Korean front. What I wanted to do tonight was to do a show where we did not, except for the banner, kind of mention the COVID-19 situation. That is going to be probably impossible. I mean, this is so intruded in everybody's consciousness and in the world that it's very hard to even, when you try to dedicate a program to doing something really, really different, uh, it's kind of hard to do that, but we're going to try to not talk about viruses tonight. We're going to talk about much bigger and much more important things in the 
long run of things in the big scheme. So item number two, yesterday, yesterday morning, the 24th of April, was an anniversary. It was the astonishing 30th anniversary of perhaps one of the most famous uh, players in the universe, certainly in our universe, the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, this is a telescope which is about the size, in fact, it's almost literally about the size of the 100-inch telescope on the top of Mount Wilson, which in the early part of the last century, 19th century, literally revolutionized our perspectives on the universe, on galaxies. It was the first telescope that allowed Hubble to literally take pictures of Andromeda and see Cepheid variables and therefore calculate the exact distance And it was astonishing to the astronomers of that era when in the 1920s, um, the distance came up to be over one and a half million light years. I mean, this blew the universe apart. And shortly, a whole bunch of other things followed from that telescope, including uh, Edwin Hubble, again, using it to probe the depths of intergalactic space and to confirm what had been discovered a few years before at the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, where Slipher, who was an astronomer working under Lowell, had done spectroscopic studies of distant galaxies and discovered a very peculiar anomaly. They all, the farther away they were, appeared to be rushing away from Earth at literally cosmic speeds, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles per second. And the paradigm to explain that has gone back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, the Hubble uh, you know, astronomical group settled on the idea that it, in fact, was a real redshift, meaning the galaxies were receding from the Earth at increasing speeds with distance. And so a term derived called the Hubble constant which has been changing over the years as more astronomers get better telescopes and more precision in these measurements. The other model, which kind of fell into disfavor, was the idea that we were not looking in the Hubble, you know, recessional velocities of galaxies at actual, you know, galaxies speeding away from the Earth or actually from each other at all. That in fact, a phenomenon that came to be called tired light somehow entered the picture that light in traversing these immense distances through intergalactic space literally loses energy. And if it loses energy, it will undergo a redshift. Well, these two ideas are still very much in competition and we're obviously not going to settle it tonight, but this just shows you how much Hubble, Edwin Hubble became imprinted on modern astronomy. Well, of course with the launch 30 years ago, Um, of the Hubble telescope, named after Edwin Hubble, everything has changed. I mean, there's a stunning panoply of discoveries that have put us in a new and even smaller and infinitesimal position in a vast universe of something like 13.7 billion years, if you only count our universe. But as part of this developing knowledge curve in those last 30 years, it's become commonplace to consider this universe that we can see as only one of infinite numbers of bubble universes, which each coexist in a larger cosmic space-time, but which can never communicate with each other, in which some constants, perhaps in most, or the constants of physics are just different enough that life like ours, or any life at all, is literally by the laws of physics in those universes, impossible. I mean, these are deep philosophical ideas which have become mainstream because of the stunning, gorgeous pictures, something like 48 to 50,000 images, and I may be getting that wrong by a factor of 10 in the last 30 years. And if you go to that link, link number two in uh, Richard's section, You can click on that space.com image, which has all kinds of subsequent links, and you can spend the entire evening listening to us with one ear and perusing the universe by means of Hubble with the other eye. Item number three. Remember how um, a couple of weeks ago we were talking in kind of glowing terms, pun intended, 
about Comet Atlas, which was discovered uh, just a few weeks ago and which portended to be the most extraordinary visual cometary object perhaps in the last 15, 20 years. Well, it broke up. And item number three is a story about the uh, one astronomer who I believe at the Space Telescope Institute was able to finally get time on the Hubble telescope. These telescopes, of course, are all booked up, you know, years in advance. So when something brand new happens, somebody has to say, okay, I'll give some of my time. And somebody else has to say, okay, I'll give some of my time. So they finally got a decent, very high-res image from Hubble of Comet Atlas. And you can see the image there. It broke up into all kinds of interesting fragments, which have become now mini comets. And they're all traveling along together through space in orbit around the sun. Um, it was around the orbit of Mars when it broke up, which is very far away from the sun for that breakup to occur because the gravitational forces are minimal. So why did it crumble? Why did it break up? Again, one of the questions that will be answered maybe when they get a decent time to do some analyses as it whips around the sun at the end of May and heads out toward uh, interstellar space. Apparently, it's not an interstellar visitor. It's still attached to the sun by gravity, but it came from a long, long, long way away out in what is called the Oort cloud, which is supposed to be this huge bevy of hundreds of trillions of comets, bergy bits in the model that are floating around the sun in orbit out there, way out there, maybe halfway between us and the nearest star. And we'll know more in the next few weeks and months and years when they have done more analysis. And one of the big questions I want to know is why did it break up so soon when it was near nothing, just an interplanetary space falling in toward the sun? Because the sunlight at Mars, as we all know, is much dimmer than it is at Earth. So the heating should have been really, really minimal. So why did it fall apart? A query to be answered sometime in the future. However, segueing from that comet story to another comet story, remember how some weeks ago, actually now months, I started talking about Comet Borisov, which is literally the second interstellar visitor about a year after Oumuamua to be detected entering the solar system. And if you've been following our program, you know that I was <clears throat> kind of marking off in terms of distance from the Earth and distance from the sun when Borisov reached the 1.95 astronomical unit mark. And I was correlating those markers just in terms of its celestial distance as it was falling in toward the sun at about a 44 degree angle to the plane of the planets. I was noting the weird correlations between it reaching that 19.95 AU distance, which of course is shorthand for 19.5, number in the physics, the key number, and the correlation of those distances, both going in toward the sun, looping around the sun, and then exiting the solar system when it reaches 1.95 AU again, with some very interesting terrestrial political events going on here on planet Earth. And because of Muamua, the first interstellar visitor, had these same 19.5 markers in its trajectory, I was proposing the outrageous idea that someone has been sending us these visitors, these messengers, for some reason. And they're supposed to be noted by someone or someone's here on Earth, and therefore they synchronize terrestrial events with these markers in the sky as part of a big cosmic tableau being set up by someone currently unknown in the model that we are not alone. And we have a extraordinary lengthy and very complex history, both on and off the planet, going back millions of years, not just stuck on this little speck of dust, and that someone is gently, in kind of like a prime directive way, sending us these objects with these key numbers to let us know, A, 
they're out there. B, they're somehow connected to us. And C, they're somehow connected to current terrestrial events. I know that's a huge leap. That's an extraordinary out-of-the-box idea. Well, let me give you another data point. A few days ago, astronomers who had been measuring the composition of Borisov, which is the second interstellar visitor, remember, on a trajectory, taking it in past the sun, swinging around, heading back to deep space, interstellar space, never to return because it's exiting it in excess of the escape velocity of the sun. They've done with Hubble and with a terrestrial radio observatory in Chile, which can observe in the microwave and millimeter section of the spectrum. They've observed from these two different telescopes, two different techniques, two different teams, et cetera, et cetera, what we love to call in the sciences independent confirmation. By these two techniques, using the ultraviolet spectrometer on Hubble and radio frequency detection at the uh, uh, Atama um, radio telescope there in Chile, they have found that this bizarre visitor named Borisov, the second only visitor to the solar system, and the first that kind of looks like a comet, it's got an extraordinarily weird composition, like no other comets measured tethered to the sun. It's got something like three to four times the amount of carbon monoxide, which other comets have have been seen to possess, but in nowhere near these amounts. And of course, all the mainstream models say, oh, well, that's explained because it came from another forming star. It came from a position in the stellar nebula, which created the star and maybe planets around that star that was very, very rich in carbon monoxide compared to comets that formed around our star. There is another possibility And so when we bring the panel on, I'm going to kind of let each one of them either venture a model or a theory or a guess as to why Comet Borisov has this extraordinary, outrageous amount of carbon monoxide compared to any comet we have previously known. Item number five. This is why we're all here together tonight. As I was discussing uh, some weeks ago with Dr. Chandrawick Ramasinghe, And when we get into our discussion, I'm going to actually play a brief recording of that conversation. NASA, under this COVID-19 insanity going on around the world, quietly slipped out a press release announcing another mystery on Mars. That in addition to the methane, which goes up and down on Mars in a seasonal cycle matched to the two Earth year uh, Martian orbit of the sun, the Martian year. They now have detected, using the instrumentation on the Curiosity rover at Gale Crater, another mystery. There is oxygen on Mars. Not a lot, just a a trace, just a whiff compared to what we're breathing here. You certainly couldn't breathe it, you know, without a face mask and a spacesuit right now. You would die of suffocation. But it's measurable, and it also goes up and down. It increases, it decreases. It increases, it decreases. And what's really provocative is it increases and decreases in synchronicity, in synchronism, in parallel to the rising and falling methane abundances measured by Curiosity in the Martian atmosphere. And without giving away the the store, I'm going to play you what um, Dr. Wick Ramasinghe who is probably the world's most eminent astrobiologist on the planet tonight, said on this show just a few days ago when I confronted him with just what I told you, the synchronization of these two mysterious gases and the fact that they're rising and falling in, in unison, and it apparently is part of a Martian yearly cycle. And so for those of you who may have missed the show, I hope it isn't a lot of you, uh, we're going to play what Dr. Wick Singh's reaction was when we get into our discussion. Speaking of discussions, if you now look at item six, 
7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Oh, and 13, sorry, forgot 13. Uh, actually, there's even a fourth, well, you know, those are in my section. What you're seeing there visually is a kind of pictorial summation of the last 30 years of what began as the independent Mars investigation and then morphed into the Enterprise mission, looking at the, at the outrageous idea that there once was a high-tech civilization, maybe more than one, on Mars. And this has its origins in a photograph, which is item number six, taken by the Viking spacecraft in 1976 um, in July, actually on July 20th of 1976. We might want to change the uh, caption there. And what it shows is this quirky uh, schematic, maybe cartoon style thing on the Martian surface that looked like a face. Well, we've come a long way from that July afternoon when this face on Mars was shown to us in the Von Karman Auditorium at JPL, an assemblage of like about a thousand press people from all over the world gathered to see daily the newest results from the Viking landers on Mars, the first probes from Earth to try to look for life physically in situ on another planet. And out of nowhere came this quirky face, which, of course, was immediately dismissed by the powers that be, including the uh, project scientist of the, at the time who stood up in front of all of us and solemnly said, well, when they took a picture a few hours later, it all went away. It was just a trick of light and shadow. Except that was not the truth. If you look at number seven, this is a side-by-side -side computer enhanced from the original Viking data tapes of the face on Mars, photographed by Vikings, sent to Earth. The, the image on the left is the cleaned-up, better version, signal-to-noise ratio uh, uh, taken into account, by one of our colleagues many years ago, Dr. Mark Carlotto. In fact, I had Mark on just a few weeks ago to discuss his current research. He was then working for a very secretive, high-tech, um, uh, military, uh, shall we say, uh, contractor. But he took some time out. Somehow we convinced him, and his own curiosity convinced him, and he ran through their computers the original data tapes in the 1980s from the 1976 images of the face on Mars. And what you'll see there is a side-by-side -side comparison because it turned out that Dr. Soffin, Dr. Jerry Soffin, who was the project scientist and a friend of mine, when he stood up and said that it all went away when the second picture was taken, Jerry, for some reason, lied. We're getting kind of used to that in public policy these days, but back then it was unthinkable that a NASA scientist would stand up and tell a bold-faced lie to the not just the American press corps, but to the world. Because two private individuals at Goddard, the Goddard Space Flight Center, in the years after Jerry made that statement, went into the archives of the Goddard Space Flight Center, prints made from those Viking data tapes back in the 70s, uh, published them and published a second image taken 35 days after the first image. The first image was called 35A72. That was its ID number. The second image on the right, 70A13, that was an image taken at a higher sun angle and a different orbit angle by the same spacecraft, the Viking Orbiter 1, 35 days after the left-hand picture was taken. And lo and behold, not only was the face still there, but now scientists at NASA, if they wanted to, which they never did, and scientists outside NASA, a lot of whom wanted to, and they did, were able to composite these two separate images taken 35 days apart into a stereo vision of the thing lying on Mars, including Dr. Mark Carlotto and his amazing three-dimensional representation, which we'll get to momentarily. And lo and behold, it was a three-dimensional, fully formed facial image lying on a platform, staring straight up into space where it had no business being 
a face, a real statue, of over a mile long and over a thousand feet wide on the planet Mars. Again, I'm moving very quickly. Item number eight is the fact that we looked around when we kind of got into this back in the uh, uh, early 80s. We found a whole bunch of other objects, all linked by an exquisite, internally consistent geometry. That's item number eight. Item number nine is some of Mark's later three-dimensional renditions from those original 2D uh, Viking data tapes of the layout of the so-called city at Sidonia in the bottom left-hand corner, the face in 3D out on the horizon, and in the bottom right, an object we're going to be talking about a great deal with one of our colleagues from England called the D&M Pyramid, which I named after DiPietro and Molinar, who were the two independent contractors at Goddard, who took the time and went through the Goddard files and found the critical second image of the face on Mars, belying what NASA had blithely told us on that afternoon in July of 1976. Moving along, item number 10, which we're going to talk about as we have our conversation, is a composite of much later spacecraft high-resolution imaging of the face on Mars looking straight down, the left-hand side, the black-and-white side, is from Mars Global Surveyor. The right-hand side is a color image taken pre-dawn uh, by Mars uh, Odyssey, um, which was named after Arthur C. Clarke's famous 2001 A Space Odyssey by NASA. In fact, we're going to be playing some music tonight as part of our, our bumper music from NASA, from this rather amazing um, sequence of events that NASA has been very quietly pursuing and not telling all the rest of us. As you, see, can, as you can see clearly, the right-hand side, even pre-dawn, shows a stunning array of geometric, highly reflective structure, totally unlike desert mesas here on Earth, which have a kind of a drab and very grayish appearance in pre-dawn light because there is no sun and because they're just masses of rock. Item number 11, flashing forward the film now to our landings. We've got many rovers which have been set down on Mars, particularly the Curiosity rover, which is still there. Item number 11 is a close-up of an extraordinary set of objects that are clearly, by any standard, artificial, including the shard of metal in the middle, which has a neat set of springs at the bottom, which is clearly a fragment of a larger structure. It looks to me like some kind of tank where only the bottom part, the densest part, is still remaining from erosion. Remember many times I've said, quoting the ancient Apache legend, it only takes one white crow to prove all crows aren't black. It only takes one image, one image on a planet to prove that in fact, all objects on that planet are not natural, and in fact, there is a panoply of intelligent designed structures waiting to be discovered and waiting to be found. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we return, we will introduce our panel, and we will discuss tonight NASA's secret confirmation of everything I've just described. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday, April 25th, 2020. Gosh, where is the year going already? It's a quarter, but gone. One quarter already gone. Okay, um, let me try to do this in some coherent fashion, because we have a lot of guests tonight, including some folks that I'm very glad uh, have dropped by to uh, both observe as well as to participate. I'm not going to read full bios because you can go to the other side of midnight.com. You can click on the guest page. You can scroll down and see everybody. Many of them you know. This is our Enterprise Mission Imaging team. Uh, Andrew Curry, who began his artistic career as a community public artist working with neighborhood groups to create murals in schools and community centers. He eventually went on to get a Bachelor's of Arts degree from the University of British Columbia and a diploma in graphic design and illustration and a master's in art therapy. Bob Harrison, all the way from across the pond in England, is a keen investor, and he's been working on something for decades called the Sedonia Quest website, and has become one of the most interesting and professional members of the team, literally going back decades, and he has done astonishing work on a series of features on Mars we have discovered which seem to prescind after the DNM pyramid, which we call arcologies. And I will have Bob, when we bring him on, kind of describe what that term means and why it is so relevant to our discussion tonight. Tim Saunders is a British national currently living in Turkey, but tonight he's kind of stranded because of COVID-19 in Florida, where he's been doing some very productive work on a range of things. And, you know, we might just interrupt our flow and ask him, what's new? He has a, um, well, I, I can say from firsthand experience that, that Tim is probably one of the most imaginative uh, nautical engineers and yacht designers that I have met in my career. And um, it's, a, it's a short hop from designing sea ships to designing spaceships. And someday we may have the uh, pleasure of working together on a truly um, one-of-a-kind enterprise mission craft that can go boldly where others have gone before and verify all the things we're going to be discussing tonight. Another member of the team is Ron Gerbron. He is with us from San Diego. He is a proudly uncredentialed, this is a direct quote, polymath with a proudly uncredentialed and deep interest in the study of archaeology. Um, he was raised in, in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania on a farm, collected arrowheads as a kid, um, eventually went to major university, and gave up on academia, as you're going to hear as the evening moves along, and has done far more outside of academia than inside. I can personally attest to that because some of our most interesting modern ideas have come from very long discussions I've had with Ron, and I, I value every one of them. Kinthea is our producer, our executive producer, but long before she decided to put on that hat, and even develop and pioneer a new news show, which is on this network, if we can call this a network, every Friday night, 
from 7 to 9 Pacific called The Other Side of the News. Gosh, I wonder where they got that title. She was a California artist peacefully minding her own business when I swooped in and kidnapped her, and she became the Mama Mars of the Independent Mars Investigation. And you can read all about her various work, and we'll talk a bit, obviously, tonight about it, because she was the first person to, in analog, take those two images, the high sun angle and the low sun angle, the ones that were not supposed to exist, remember, according to Safin, and put them together in projectors and with lights at right angle and bending over for literally thousands of hours over a table full of clay to create the first three-dimensional analog model, stereo 3D model in clay that you could pick up and turn around and look at and all that that ever had been done on the planet. And then some years later, like a year or so later, um, when Carlotto joined, he did all this in a computer, of course, with a lot less effort. And lo and behold, the two models, Kintia's analog model using techniques that go back literally hundreds of years in terms of sculpture, and the digital model that had been created out of state-of-the-art software called Shape from Shading by Dr. Carlotto, 3,000 miles away in Boston, when you compare those two versions of the infamous controversial face on Mars, remember officially just the trick of light and shadow, the two models matched. Not only independent investigators, but independent techniques, independent technology. I mean, you can't get more scientific than that. And um, we also have tonight Chris Rogers with us. Now, Chris has a very interesting personal story because Chris is primarily a musician, a hell of a good musician. He hails from a family of professional musicians and grew up as a third-generation New Yorker. He, At the age of 10, he received his first horn as a gift from uh, Lou Soloff, the amazing trumpeter famous for his solo in Spinning Wheel and Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And we all know, you know where that came from. Anyway, he studied classical trumpet with the Vincent Paranzella of the New York Philharmonic and appeared in the movie Fame shortly after attending Manhattan's prestigious high school of music and art. And again, you can read all of Chris's bio there, but he has been watching the evolution of our Mars investigations from the beginning. And um, I believe that he is not connected on Skype. So if someone can do that, that will be very uh, – uh, I may have to do that from here. Um, anyway, we'll bring everybody else on, and then I'll go and pick up Chris. Skype can be very cantankerous sometimes, as a lot of people are now discovering all over the world. Last but not least, we are, uh, again, um, uh, have the great pleasure to be joined by Richard Grossinger, who has, among other things, a Ph.D. in anthropology from the University of Michigan. And I wanted Richard to be part of tonight's conversation because – he has been kind of out of the loop after he published the Monuments of Mars literally many decades ago. And so he's kind of like a test audience. He's going to be listening and observing and looking at what we're presenting tonight to all of you out there. And probably around in the third hour, we're going to be asking Richard, well, what do you think? Have we made the case that, in fact, there is an extraordinary panoply of life on Mars culminating with the artificial artifacts that we are seeing now all over and close up in the Curiosity images. So without further ado, let me welcome everyone, my entire panel, with one to come, to the other side of midnight once again. Ladies and gentlemen, we're on the air. Thank you. Good air. Okay, Kintia? Yes. Okay, who wants to jump in? I, I guess, Kinti, it probably should be you because you're a member of the team that's been part of this the longest. Um, and, of course, we also have Keith Morgan, who was kind of in abeyance in the background. He came up with this extraordinary mathematical discovery called the Morgan Curve. And I will bet you dollars to Navy Beans that's going to come up sometime this morning. So, Keith, you might say hi. Hello. How are you? <laughs> okay. Kintia, where do you want to pick up? Where should we start this this decades and decades long story? Well, actually, actually, Richard, actually, I'm still putting images. Oh, okay. Just saying hello. All right. 
Well, bring me on after I've got everyone's image. Okay, super. All right. I'll tell you what. Let me, let me do this. This is live radio, folks. Let me go with a little help from Keith here and try to find Chris. All right. And if I do this properly, see, everybody now, all the people that used to wonder how, you know, this program got produced, because they're all staying home and they're using Zoom or Skype or one of these things, they are all privy to the vagaries of these particular programs. It says it's calling Chris. It says Chris has joined. Mr. Rogers. I love saying that. Mr. Rogers, are you with us? Chris, do you have your mic muted? That's always a bad thing on on Skype. Uh, Let me go check and see. Um, Chris, you should be with us. I'm not hearing. I'm not hearing him. Hmm. Keith, can you figure out why? I'm not hearing Keith either. That's really weird. It's the parking brake on the Starship. Ah, yes. You always have to release the parking brake. Um, that's Ron. Uh, do you want to jump in? Uh, always glad to. I talk to you. Yes, uh, by all means. The pictures. That's what I'm here for. Huh? <laughs> well, you've been following this work for almost as long as we've been doing it. Um, kind of, you know, limb out your your reactions to the evolution of the research from the fragile. You know, everything was pinned on two images of a anomaly on Mars that no one believed could possibly be A, B, human, C, real, et cetera, et cetera, to where we are tonight, where we have a surfeit of objects that unquestionably are artificial, and we're not the only folks looking. I mean, there are people all over the world, as we will hear from Will Farrer when he joins us in the second hour, who are looking feverishly to see what NASA is revealing without exactly telling us what they have revealed. Ah. Yeah, well, I started so long ago that I can remember going out at night and seeing the Milky Way in the sky. Oh, that is long ago. (laughs) Yeah, I was just a little kid, but that used to be a favorite thing. I mean, I was living out in the country, so, you know, that was not a problem. But uh, skipping forward many, many years, I'd always been interested in it. I had, as long as I can remember, I had assumed that there were other people out there and that they'd come here and mess around with us in one way or another. And I thought, hmm, I should try and figure this out. And um, had all the usual situations occur. Probably got abducted at least once. Uh, I don't know. But uh, never pursued that. But that Face on Mars, the original one, which everybody's that doesn't like the idea, has torn to shreds one way or another. First time I saw that, I said, oh, a great big face. How about that? And I mean, there, there couldn't have been any doubt. You know, I was not nearly as savvy about uh, the images, the raw images at that time as I became later, but I already knew that much. You know, it was just silly to say it was anything else, and it was just symmetry. I didn't care about the geometry or anything else. It just looked like a face. It obviously was because it was reactive to the lighting. You know, I, I grew up back east. We've got the, several places where they claim to have the old man in the mountain on a hillside where you can see it from a certain angle. So I was completely familiar with that already. You mean, you, you mean yeah. the, the old man in the mountain in Franconia, New Hampshire? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and there's you know there's several other similar things. Some that are yeah, but those are those are profiles. Those are not three dimensional, mile long exactly. statues. Exactly, exactly. It's not a full presentation. And uh, then I got to the when I started to study it, I realized that NASA was messing up the pictures, which they had been doing since the beginning. Oh. Well, I applied a little logic to it, and I said, "Aha." What, they're hiding something on purpose. Okay, a lot of times people in authority and, or business hold things back so they've got something better uh, to offer later. But in this case, it just seemed like lying. And I thought, hmm, what is this? Well, this had started many years before there was such a thing as Photoshop, so I figured it had to be something simpler. So eventually I figured it out, and you still have to do the normal tasks that everyone does with enhancing a photo and, you know, some people are better at it than others. Uh, but 
the key was sort of unlocking them. And all of a sudden, it was all of these pictures of faces and buildings and sculpture and, and every imaginable kind of structure. No, wait, 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 wait. You mean you were able to get through the filters and get into NASA's or JPL's secret files? I don't think there are any secret files. I, it took it took me no time at all to figure out that it was just too much work for bureaucrats, no matter how much they're paid, no matter how many you have, no matter how deep the secret, because sometimes that makes it worse. There's only one set of archives. I'm quite sure that there are pictures that are held back. Everybody, like I said, holds back the special stuff. You know, you don't put out the 50-year-old scotch for your neighbor when they drop by. Uh, <laughs> so there had to be some of that. But that was just, you know, that was just um, uh, uh, human behavior. You know, that, that was apart from any secrets. The uh, real problem was that it was keeping the public from realizing something or accepting something that everybody through ancient times had always thought. People get tied up in thinking about the ancient gods. And, well, okay, why did they think that? They thought that because somebody came and visited them. You can easily see in mythology the difference between elemental spirits, you know, which just rise out of a basic feeling that everything is somewhat alive and reacts to its environment. So you might want to um, mollify it once in a while. But it's not the same thing as having a physical character, an avatar that shows up and says, hi, I'm not from around here, but I'm a lot better at a lot of things than you are, so why don't you listen to me? And, you know, the that's a completely different setup, and that was their basis. So nobody, nobody in most parts of the world ever disputed the thought that there were other beings elsewhere. It just, and then all of a sudden it all went away, and that's a that's a relatively recent phenomenon. That all of a sudden that was just just too hyperloy to consider, and I've never understood that change. But it's there's a somewhat of a sinister stink to it. Anyway, that with the NASA pictures. Uh, once you unlock them, um, you can enhance the hell out of them and get 90% of it out of there. I just have an easier way to do it for mine. But, you know, some people might like somebody else's. Uh, but the stuff that you find is amazing, and it has all these tie-ins with Earth. It's like, let's see what the uh, – if we jump to the pictures, Okay. The, uh, unfortunate, the unfortunately tiny little number four is um, – I know you can blow it up. Okay, let me tell folks uh, how to get there. Let me let me give them a roadmap. Okay. You click on our URL tonight, the other side of midnight.com. Click on tonight's banner. Has NASA quietly confirmed under the cover of the COVID nineteen crisis, current life on Mars? Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page tonight. Right under the banner, duplicated at the top of the guest page, which uh, for some reason keeps being called the show page, but that's okay. Um. You click on Andrew's fast link items. He's number one, two, three, four, five from the left. Click on Ron. That will take you to his items. And what are we looking at? Okay, if you've made it to number four, okay, okay so number two four panels there. Go ahead and click on it so that it's big enough to see. And um, the top one. Uh, that's from Sol uh, 538. It's a curiosity shot. It's uh, kind of in the distance from where it was sitting. You know, if you look at the pictures from that Sol, you'll see this was up on the, this is up on the ridge. And it ex there's a, some other obviously connected parts that go off in both directions to the sides. But it was easier to show something traumatic. And right in the middle, that particular configuration on the side of the corner, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's a fellow named uh, called Chalk, uh, the Mayan and Aztec uh, rain god. Well, the Aztecs call him Tlaloc, but all the mythology is the same. And it's the it's strange because it's the only crossover like that that's so identical between the Aztec mythology and the Mayan mythology. The um, uh, there's a particular. Um, God, the rabbit, one of the rabbit gods, uh, Maya, well, the uh, eldest rabbit goddess, uh, who's the goddess of agave, and, which is where you get polke, which was their uh, let's get rip roaring out of it on Friday night drink. Hmm. And um, You can click on these yeah, and make them much yeah. bigger. Right. 
So I'm talking about a different god than Chalk. Chalk was the storm god. I just think it's cool that Maya Well uh, birthed 400 rabbits, and they're known as the 400 drunken rabbits. And uh, her her husband, uh, Pat Paddle, I think, was a I don't have it in front of me. Uh, was the god of drunkenness. So that fit in just fine. And uh, the uh, but the Aztecs accepted that completely, even though they had a strict uh, sort of Calvinist, you don't drink attitude, which is probably why they were so mean and ornery all the time, but uh, it, not in their gods. And uh, so this guy, Chuck, is very equivalent to the all-familiar Thor. He carried an axe that threw lightning, and um, that's you can see it uh, – He's, you're looking at his left side, and you see an arm um, bent in a manner that most of the um, depictions in Mayan art are, you know, in other words, just like a V. Mm. And hanging off the edge of the corner. I wish, little, Ron, let me interrupt. Cone. Let me interrupt, okay? I wish I could get yeah. you to put arrows, because I'm looking at this, and if I did not know your work, I would have not a clue where to look. Well, I, there's another thing on there I didn't even mention to you. So that's, uh, I see many, many things. Yeah. My question is, yeah, how do we know they're my... real? They're not just projections. Well, I didn't think... No, I don't no, mean, I don't mean that... you. I'm... I know. This is an ongoing philosophical distinction here. I think arrows mostly get in the way, and I, want to, and I want to show when I can something that's so undeniably not natural and accidental you have to go, okay, well, that's crafted in some fashion for some reason. I wonder what that is. And then along with that goes the explanation. Remember, Andrew does storyboards, which have to be very carefully descriptive. Mm. I used to sell gallery paintings, which are those god-awful, ugly things that New York is so famous for, where you have to have an explanation to go with the picture or it makes no sense to you. Uh, abstracts and so forth. The more creative you are about the story, the better that is. But this isn't the only thing I've found of chalk. It's just the clearest representation of an earth one I've seen. I think about the top third of his head is missing. So he's looking up. He's got a kind of a flattened nose and a hair lip. And those are both characteristics of the character. And the rest is headdress. Are we talking about that large uh, structure with the kind of V-shaped shadow thingy that looks like a mouth to the right of the corner block we're looking at? In the corner block is what I'm talking about. On the corner block, on the uh, that would be the left side of it. You know, if you consider the shadowed side to be the front. Okay. Uh, and his little axe is sticking out there and looks strangely mechanical. Um, as Richard already knows, this looks much. This makes much more sense in the book where there's context. But there's a lot of glyphs there which do look like that's all the sharper they can get. But the, um, like I said, it was a picture in the distance from the Curiosity's TV camera. But uh, they sure look like the Mayan style of glyph writing. And anyway, uh, I'd love to talk about chalk, but that's boring. So if you go over to the left there in the shadows, you will see looking to the left um, a very Egyptian or Middle Eastern looking face. He's got a smaller pointy nose and the um, think of the lighted, the, the lighted patch at the top of the blocks there. Uh, as the side of perhaps his ceremonial hat. And then look down below. You'll see his eyes and uh, a nose. Someone else actually pointed this out to me once when I first found it, before I'd seen it, even though I didn't enhance the whole picture. So it's there. And then if you go straight down from him, all in that same picture, there's a little thing, which isn't as sharp as I'd like on here, of a, uh, there's a very small head of a pharaoh on the uh, top surface of that, um, Thing at the bottom. I'll call it a thing. Unfortunately, Ron, without arrows, I am lost. Okay, and I know well, this material. The one below. So yeah, okay. Well, then all right. So, below to the other one. Let, let us, you know, let let people kind of linger on that because the more you look at this, the more things begin to kind of come into focus. And the, the main thing I want to highlight in your early earliest appearance here now is you're asserting that we have a panoply of artwork on Mars in addition to the face on Mars. And furthermore, it can be connected stylistically to one of the most enigmatic, enigmatic cultures on Earth, i.e. the Mayans. Right. That's a pretty okay. astonishing that statement. 
Well, it, uh, I think it just goes on forever. It's all the gods. There are other places on Mars where the stuff looks very Vedic culture, you know, like you would see in India or something. Mm-hmm. Um, the Vamanas and so forth. Uh, but the uh, the second one I mentioned here with the square kind of square head, yeah, that's very Middle Eastern looking, and uh, I wouldn't call it Egyptian. I'd say he looks like Hu or Huron or one of the primeval gods of the Levantine. But um, and then there's something off to the right side that is also probably somebody. I haven't figured out what it is yet. It looks like a fish. Uh, they, they're all like that. And it's not a mistake, and they're not just the products of light and shadow, and they're not the products of uh, water. Let me speed talk through these so you the, I got the light and shadow thing covered. But the lower part of this picture, there's that thing which, I mean, it looks like an ironing board on the top. You mean Sol 710? 10. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, can you see the flat, the flat rounded surface at the top? Oh, sure. Yeah, okay. That's like a sarcophagus lid. And I can't come in to explain everything about it, but it, uh, that's obviously an, it's an altar or a sarcophagus lid. And then you look down below and you see all that stuff that's structural parts and you realize it's a fallen wall. That happens every time when you look at the Martian stuff. Uh, now then, uh, if we go back up to number one or two. Well, Table, why don't we hold it? Because I think we've got Chris with us. Chris, are you there? Oh, you found him? I okay. think we've got him. Chris, sign in, please. Here's to Chris. I'm not hearing Chris. All right, one more. Okay, I tell you what, let, 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 let's save this for the next half hour because we're coming up to a break. Um, this is going to get complicated because there is so much material and so little time, <clears throat> as someone once said very famously. Um, uh, what I want to do is I want to introduce Bob Harrison, and then, Bob, when we come back, we'll... I want you to go back to the beginning and how you got on board this extraordinary research effort. Mr. Harrison, are you there? Unmuting helps. There you are. Hey, unmuted. There you are. Yes. Okay. Actually, we've, we've only got a minute, you know, actually less than a minute. So I'm, I'm going to defer this because I don't want to shortchange anybody tonight. And we do have a very full complement, so everybody's going to have to think in abbreviated terms. Um, I have to think myself, where am I here? <laughs> so um, let me do this. And do, 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 do. okay. And I don't want to do that. I want to do this. Sorry, folks, this is live radio. And sometimes live radio does not always proceed the way you want it to. I don't think we want that. Okay, there. There we are. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland, and I thought tonight... For some interesting bumper music, I would play some cuts from War of the Worlds, the 1950s George Pal production. And you, of course, all know how the uh, War of the Worlds story ends. H.G. Uh, Wells, the Martians are done in invading Earth by tiny, tiny organisms, microbes, kind of reflections of where the Earth is tonight. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website the other side of midnight.com and click on the join club 19.5 link in the left hand column as a club 19.5 member you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 plus shows that we have done now recent club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced 
You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.